is Chelsea Higgs Wise. And I decided to start a show about being the biracial girl who was living her life, being half and half, never picking a side until one day the world informed me, girl, you're black. I'm from the listening to Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson. Hey there, Kat. Hello, Chelsea. How are you today? Doing well. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm enjoying the summer. I know. The last week of June already. Yeah, it's crazy. It's flying by. So what has been on your radar over the past week? So I read an article today about how there used to be the statue of Robert E. Lee in Dallas. Uh-huh. But they took it down. They took it down. Good for them. In 2017. It just sold for $1.4 million to, I don't know, someone who wanted a Confederate statue. But huh. in order to get it, there was one condition. It couldn't be displayed in public in the Dallas metro area. <laughs> I'm actually really okay with that stipulation. That's so interesting. I wonder where it went. I know. I know. I did not get a chance to do a lot of digging. But I mean, and I'm curious, like, who buys a Confederate statue? Well, But do they want more? Because mm. we have plenty. <laughs> like, I mean, if there is a buyer out there that's willing to just keep it and never display it in public in certain areas again, let's chat. So also in Virginia, we heard last week from Mark Herring, mm-hmm. who says we might be getting closer to be able to smoke weed without going to jail. Look at that. Look at the progress. Yeah, there's been a lot of conversations about that. I was really happy to read that opinion. Yeah, the piece in the Daily Press. Yeah, and he was able to give some good stats on why justice around marijuana is so important. And I know that there is a small nonprofit that just started marijuana justice in Virginia. Now, who did that? I believe it was um what is her name yeah no guys yeah that's something new that i have been able to start with some black organizers here in richmond and it's been really awesome marijuanajustice.org but to see our state representatives be out there also saying it and donald mckeechin this past weekend at the state of black america was also really able to poignantly say why we need justice within marijuana now they're having the conversation about decrim first in order to talk about the expungements of that i am okay with that as long as this is not just a slow road to it I I actually believe more in just the legalization piece and we put it all in there because no matter what the I smell marijuana as long as that's still a gateway to the injustice and that's going to still be there with decriminalization then we are not approaching this with the justice lens but still super happy with Mark Herring's announcement of that Yeah, and you mentioned some of the facts that he dropped, so I will share those with you all. In the op-ed, he highlights that the overall arrests for marijuana position have increased by about 115% from 2003 to 2017. Mm -hmm. But moreover, as he says, African Americans comprise 46% of all first offense possession arrests from 2007 to 2016, despite the fact that African Americans are 20% of Virginia's population. Also, he cited studies consistently showing that marijuana usage rates are common comparable between African-Americans and white Americans. Mm. Moreover, African-Americans received half of all charges of first-time marijuana possession in Virginia, and African-Americans are more likely to be convicted of marijuana charges and sentenced to jail. So in the 400th year, if we're looking for a racial equity policy that we can really focus on that addresses the harms of the past, as well as an economic participation in the future, marijuana legalization seems to be where it's at. 
Hopefully that this is not just a tagline to the reparations Juneteenth and we don't continue to talk about this, especially after November 5th. So I'm going to shift gears really rapidly. Talk for a second about Islamophobia, <clears throat> anti-Islam in the yep. classroom. In Loudoun County, they're switching textbooks using social science classes. I don't know if you heard about that. I'm sorry, what? So some people pointed out the fact that there are sections in these books that were equating Islam with terrorism in the Middle East. And I would just like to highlight for those of you who don't know, one, don't equate terrorism with the Middle East. There is right. a difference between being Arab and being a part of a terrorist organization. There is a difference between being Muslim and being a part of the terrorist organization. That's a whole other conversation. But also, I would like to point out that the large majority of Muslims are not Arab. Anyway, this textbook was equating terrorism, the Middle East, and Islam. So they want to get new textbooks. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. that has proven to be problematic because of the bigotry that is rife in the textbook industry. Yep. Of course there is, because it's in every sector like possible. The distribution, the writers, the publication. I'm sure. Why not? Why wouldn't it be? And we see that very much here in Virginia. Oh, yeah. I mean, we they're... Confederate history. Confederate history, right? And I will always lift Melanie Buffington over at VCU, who does a lot of good work of going through the archives of when they legitimately changed the Virginia textbooks and took out the information about the accurate Civil War history. So there's a lot of work just being done to dissect how we have created this very false narrative. Now, does that include removing the argument that this was an economic war? Right. And by economics, we mean the selling of human bodies. Right, right, right. Not tobacco, not that the the North was trying to bankrupt the South of what this is. No, 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 no. It, it talks about justice. It talks about freedom. It talks about reconstruction. But those are the pieces that are out of our Virginia textbooks at this time, unfortunately. The last thing in Richmond on my docket is that the rumor on the street is that there wasn't a C at Broad Rock Elementary last week. Now, I haven't been able to confirm that with RPS officials, but uh -huh. I don't really see why anybody would go out in public and <laughs> make that up. Lack of air conditioning in Richmond Public Schools at this point is not surprising. Jesus, that's sad. But yeah, so we need to understand what's happening in our school systems and how these babies are supposed to learn. I wonder if that's a summer school placement because mm -hmm. there we are back in summer school. And and if I know anything about the way Richmond Public Schools has operated, they probably knew that thing was going to be out pretty soon. And it's like, well, school's going to be out soon. We'll fix it later. That's not something we can look at now. Did they get out of school early or was there any other? Plan? I wasn't able to get any more yeah. information. Right. So. Well, let's just remember that our schools might be fully funded, but our kids do not feel that literally <laughs> literally don't feel the air <laughs> yeah so looking at my radar news i'm just going to go ahead and give a huge shout out to the hbc research team that Yay. was highlighted on hbo's vice uh this past friday and thank you so much to antonia hilton for that thank you for all the feedback on that and just continue to lift these young minds because the comments the feedback of course were just filled with racism and targeting these young black minds so as exciting news as it was, it was also myself and the RVA Dirt Girls getting on the phone with them in a group text and just uplifting them and saying, hey, you're here. You have a voice. Don't listen to that. Never, never, never read the comments. For yeah. sure. And shout out to you and RVA Dirt. Thank you. Thank you. And speaking of that research fellowship, we 
have to talk a little bit about how Northam and Virginia right now is failing on environmental justice. As of today, the Virginia Mercury reported last week that environmental justice policies on the books in the Commonwealth are just not there. And how can we be doing well as a state if we're not even addressing these laws? If we're talking about climate resilience and the unmitigated successes, we're really glossing over the fact that they've allocated zero funds and have no accountability to how we're going to make sure this happens. And environmental justice is racial justice, exactly, Governor Northam. So please don't allow that sector of our minds to go unsaid and unthought of. So just remembering that that's something else we need to hold our state accountable for. But in celebration this weekend and another time where we got to see our state officials come out and use their own platform in a case of racial justice. What's the Arthur Ashe Boulevard celebration that came about? It was all weekend. We had John Lewis, who was a major legacy hero here in Richmond. Reportedly thousands, maybe hundreds came out on Saturday to the ceremony. They had a community day after at the community center that my daughter and I attended as well. There's a social justice forum on Thursday moderated by Mark Cheatham right here of WRIR. I will be honest and I'm not taking any... Yes, I am taking something away. At the ceremony, the main piece that I feel like is our job to point out is that there were no women speakers at the ceremony, including Councilwoman Gray, who was the patron of this ordinance to bring this change. She is a black woman. She was not invited to speak. And that was just the rumblings of the crowd all over that that was filled with men. It was filled. Yes, there were black men on there as LaVar Stoney or people of the church. But yeah, it's just just another highlight of where is the representation, where is even the thought. And Richmond Free Press actually did put that out there last week before the event and said very clearly that Kim Gray had not yet been invited to speak. And that was just something that we could pre- we could predict based on how we are treating Black women and the Commonwealth in Virginia and maybe even, not maybe, but right here in, this, in the city of Richmond as well when we're talking about legacy, when we're talking about civil rights. If we're not connecting this pipeline to what we really want to see in the future, and that was part of LeVar Stoney's speech was we are reimagining, we are showing now what we're going to be in the future, except for there were no women. How are we showing that. So I think that's just part of, again, what we need to continue to work on. Do we know who was responsible for making that decision? I don't. I, I don't know. And I, I tried to look into that a little bit more. But I there were some grassroots organizers that helped with the event. But as far as that speaking, I think usually the poli- you know, politics take over for that, right? right? And then it's hierarchy and seniority. And we have to let this person speak. Oh, but of course, they also let Tom Farrell speak. Dominion CEO because Dominion paid for this entire celebration. So women weren't allowed to speak, but guess who got the mic? So the person who brought this about politically, made it a policy, made it a real thing, was not invited to speak. But the person that, as we just talked about, is continuing to probably be a big push behind Governor Northam about this environmental injustice that's happening, got a mic right there, full front, like one of the first speakers, and there was dominion all over it. And it always brings up the Audre Lorde quote of the title of, you know, the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. And yeah, we just don't have the resources, but maybe to be intentional, we don't need something huge. And maybe we can just be real and with what we have, right? Start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. Another Arthur Ashe quote, well, Dominion Resources is not what we have, it's what they have. But again, I am glad that the boulevard is here as far as Arthur Ashe 
but let's just make sure that we are also looking at the other signs and names of streets that we can also take down. Because the only thing we're doing right now is adding context. We haven't actually dismantled anything. We just put Arthur Ashe as our black friend, right, mm-hmm. up on that street, just like he is on Monument Avenue. So what are we really dismantling? And have we even talked about taking down Jefferson Davis, which was the recommendation of the Monument Avenue Commission back then? So yes, the street is awesome. It crosses over Monument Avenue. But what are the actual steps that we're taking to dismantle and not just add context? Because it should be a both a two-way street. Continuing, I just want to make sure everyone saw that Revels reporters are now saying they've done months-long investigation process for members to private online racism groups, and they actually identified over 400 active users that fit the description of law enforcement across the nation, which means police officers, law enforcement people are joining racist white nationalism groups online at a ridiculous rate if they haven't already been a part of that. And there's no way to know how many, but the fact that we can already just tie this blows my mind. And it's also, it lines right up to how people are treated at the border. You know, when we're looking at law enforcement, who is attracted to that type of, who's attracted to that type of authority and power? So that's not just at that the border that's right here at our, you know, the people that hold the badges in our own communities. Continuing on, I'm just going down my list right here, Kat, is our boy Joe Biden right here in the Democratic Party refusing to apologize after saying he got it done with segregationists. And I really just want to bring that up because this whole working across party lines thing, that should not be something that we're aiming to do directly with white nationalists. Cory Booker, Black elected officials have come out. Even Beto, our white guy down there in the South, is like, y'all, Joe Biden should really reevaluate what he's saying because that's not the message that you want to continue to have is, yeah, I got it done back in the day with people that were champions for segregation. That's not how we want to do working across the aisle moving forward. I'll just go ahead and say that. He's not apologizing. And it also looks like Justin Fairfax is still not apologizing or even trying to make any moves. In fact, he's taking the survivor stories of the accusers and saying it's building him a better platform. And maybe now he'll even run for governor in 2021. Wow. So I just really wanted to also just bring that up and say that Justin running is is an outrage. And even according to Melissa McKinney, a Richmond activist, she says, repeatedly demonstrating a sense of entitlement and the right to possess power is not the way to convince the public that you're not the kind of person who'd feel entitled to have power over someone else's body. And that's really what we're looking at is your behaviors, your tone, the way you carry yourself right now. You're not giving me the benefit of the doubt or any type of reasonable doubt that we should provide you respect, integrity, currently, much less give you more power. Justin Fairfax. But yeah, that's all I got this week. I was on my radar. It's a lot going on, y'all, this summer. And don't forget that July 9th is the special session that's coming up. So we'll kind of see what's going on with that. And we'll keep you all updated with what's going on next week. But this week on the show, we're excited to have Amari Al-Qaddafi, who's a Richmond activist with Community Unity in Action, CUIA, and a director of Leaders of the New South, who focuses on housing, transit, and food access. Yeah, and part of the reason that we're having him today 
today is because public transportation is an ongoing conversation, but with the reroutes and the polls last summer, people have been very upset by that. People have also been very excited by that. And by people have been excited by that. I mean, white people have been excited by that. And right. they're big advocates of the polls. But there's a, a lot of people who were really screwed over by the polls and the reroute. Right. But that's part of the conversation that Omari brings to the show today. It's not just information of what's going on in transit, but really diving into and unpacking the racial narratives underlying our transportation here in Richmond. Stay tuned. Thank you so much, Omari, for being here. Hey, hey, thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. Good yes, welcome, you. welcome. Now, you are a man of many things. So introduce yourself and tell a little bit about the work that you are doing here in Richmond, Mr. al Qaddafi. I'm a community organizer. Some people or a lot of people call me an activist. I do work primarily in housing, transportation, and food access, and I'm a part of a social justice coalition called Community Unity in Action. And we pretty much monitor the social justice portfolio of the city, dealing with uh, civil rights, uh, affordable housing, transportation, education, juvenile prison reform, like all sorts of issues. Yeah, and that's pretty much what we're doing. So, and that's how people can see you in different spaces is because CUIA really does monitor different pieces in the city that have to do with civil rights. Right. The executive committee of CUIA is made up of various leaders of social justice organizations. Uh, I sit at the table at the executive committee as a leader of my advocacy group, Leaders of the New South. Mm -hmm. And there's also a number of other individuals on there. So we invited you on today to help give an update for some folks about what's going on in Richmond Transit. So let's take it back a little bit a couple years ago when Richmond really started talking about updating the transit system. And this is you've been working on transportation advocacy for a while, right? Yeah. Well, it it might I guess it might seem like it's been a long time because a lot has happened in the past few years. Yeah, so I've been working on it primarily for the last few years. However, other members of CUIA and other colleagues have been working on it for a number of years. Mm -hmm. So even before this new system was uh, implemented, the rerouting of all the buses and the post system right here in Richmond, even before, years before that, people, advocates were, were already, you know, questioning the plan that was being drawn up. So it, it was already of concern. And just even, you know, if you, you look at even the local and, and national landscape when it comes to public transit, there's been a gradual reduction of service to black and low income neighborhoods nationally. And like even here in Richmond, where you know, blacks primarily make up, I'd say, upwards of 90% of the ridership of GRTC. You know, there were certain buses that were, for example, uh, Mosby, Mosby Court. They used to have their own bus, you know, uh, one bus that went through there, and then that bus was taken away, and it was kind of that, that route was combined with the Wickham Court route. Mm. And... So that was that happened, you know, some years ago before this new system. And when when the I hate to cut you off, but oh, when yeah. those types of reroutes happen, how does that impact the writers and the people in that community? Well, I mean, 
I mean, obviously, I guess it, it makes it less convenient for them. You know, when the when the bike races came, uh, what around two thousand what sixteen? I think it was before that. I think it was like two thousand thirteen, I believe, when the the bike races came and they built the temporary transfer plaza over there by by uh, social services on Ninth Street. They took all the buses off of Broad Street, mm -hmm. you know, which is where everyone used to catch the bus, mm -hmm. you know, and, and at that point, then there was, you know, only one bus that was really going down Broad Street at that time. Right. But yeah, so it, it does, does make it less convenient. It's, it seems like all of the enhancements that end up happening, they're not really benefiting the people that are currently riding mm. the bus. Yeah, and those impacts could be like less convenient. And I really want to be blunt with people so they can see this. It's convenient to walking to the stop. It's convenient inconvenient when you have things in your hands that you're trying to bring home. You know, it's it's inconvenient to get somewhere to your job on time, especially when a lot of the buses aren't always on time according to their routes too. So really understanding the impact of what these reroutes can do. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a shame sometimes when you see, you know, elderly women walking down for blocks, you know, with the, the new system, you know, it's kind of difficult to get to the Kroger on Broad Street now, or, mm -hmm. you know, um, so it's it's kind of heartbreaking to see people walk like long blocks with uh, bags of groceries and stuff in their hands. And I think there are a lot of people who support these these new changes. They're not really depending on the bus so you know it's kind of like it's just an option for them mm -hmm. so yeah they don't they don't see themselves as really having to to bear a difficulty if the bus has changed right right and so when the reroutes and the new system came about was that something you were excited to hear was coming or just that the fact that the conversation was happening well well n not really because my my first introduction to to even knowing that the system was was being going to be changed was them saying that they were going to remove a bus stop from in front of my house. So, right. <laughs> so it didn't, you know, then that was the first thing that I ever even heard about it. And I, I think at that time, most people in the city, I don't think really even knew what was going on. You know, right. we just saw, you know, in the neighborhood, oh, they're taking away these stops and stuff. Like, like why? You know, so, but it was at that point where I found out that it was tied into you know, this whole new plan to redesign the whole network. And then that was when I noticed, oh, they're talking about removing entire routes and they're talking about taking entire, you know, streets and neighborhoods out of uh, coverage. So, no, there was never really, I never had, it was never presented to me in a way where I could say, oh, this is exciting. This is right. going to be great. Right. You know? There wasn't an the outreach there. It wasn't like a feedback. It wasn't like, hey, we're going to ask the people that are writing what's going to happen or let you know that this is happening. You felt the impact and you knew it was happening because you were directly impacted. Right, right, right. And, I mean, I, I guess they they must have done some outreach and engagement, but, you know, not. I, I wasn't aware of any of that. So the Pulse is coming, right? You're hearing about the Pulse come and this being part of the new plan. And how did that impact your work? What kind of narratives did you hear about? Well, the, the Pulse in, in itself, I mean, it, it makes it, being that that's now the only bus that really runs the most of Broad Street, it makes it really inconvenient to get places. You know, how would I even get to this studio? <laughs> like really, you know, um, there's I think there might like be one bus now that doesn't come that frequently. I think across the street, mm -hmm. but I 
We get to walk from the post station to the studio. So if you have to get places like that that are in between these long spans, you know, on Broad Street, yeah, it's going to be difficult. Right. And when The Pulse was coming out, what were some of the things that you as an advocate were saying to the public and to the administration? Well, when it came out, I pretty much was saying the same things that I had been saying to them for, you know, some time now is that I felt like there were some potential violations of civil rights going on. It was obvious that the community was being negatively impacted. People were just, oh my God, it was it was crazy when now that I remember it was hot. Yeah. It was hot when that when that last June when the bus started. And it was just dissatisfaction just all over the community. Like people were just, you know, there were no benches anywhere. Nobody knew where to go. Right. It, it was it was crazy. Yeah. People were, you know, it's a crazy time for the city. And you, I'm going to be honest, Omari, I think that oh, many of us would not have any idea about, again, the impact of any of that if it wasn't for you taking pictures, Facebook living things, and putting that on the internet so that we can keep up with that. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I do. I mean, I feel like community has to know what's going on. You know, we can't allow other people to sell us the narrative about what's going on in our community. Right. So when last summer, when The Pulse was coming and the commercials and the new ride and, you know, it looks all fancy, good and exciting, come take the new ride and it's free for this long. When I would go to your page and Leaders of the New South, what I was able to see was how this was impacting people that had been riding the bus forever, that they couldn't find their stops, that yes, we're uplifting this brand new bus, but there are still so many stops that don't have a bench, that don't have any coverage literally like if it's raining pouring there's there's no overhead there and so it was just for me and for a lot of people it was a big wake-up call of who are we serving first and what attention are and what investments are we really putting in and where yeah that's that's why it's interesting to me you know when a lot of the the other transit advocates in the city They'll, the other? Know, what, what other? What do you mean, other? <laughs> the others that uh, have not been as critical of the the new transit network. You know, there's a. I mean, to be quite frank, you know, it's just it's a lot of uh, the white transit advocates. You know, I, and I call them not not I call them white transit advocates not because you know they're white and they're transit advocates because they're advocates for white transit. Mm. So meaning that there are different transits for white folks and for black folks. Yeah, because I mean, most if you you ask most people in the city that ride the bus, if the new system was built to serve mostly white people, they're gonna tell you yes. Yeah. They can we 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 see it. So, but it's really interesting when you know those transit advocates that are not as critical. They 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 love the new system. They're just like, oh well, you know, it could be a little better, but it's definitely an improvement. You know, and when you hear them. When, when you talk to them about, well, the transit is inequitable, they, they'll lean on, oh, well, we need to put more funding into it. Though. We need to put more funding into it. That's, that's, that's the problem. And to me, I'm like, well, didn't we just put about $60 million into the transit system to mm. get this new system? So, mm. And that didn't help out the inequities you know, that you're talking about. And they sold it to the city of this is how we get more money to bring up 
you know, the old bus systems, the old stops. This is how we're going to have an equitable system. But we just need these option riders to come and join us and get their dollars in. And then it'll be reinvested versus putting that 60 million into the buses and the stops that already exist. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's really funny. It's really funny how that stuff works. Yeah. So it's not just a dynamic of having to advocate for transit it's also understanding the different dynamics and systems that you're having to navigate so in december 2018 there was a report that came out from vcu that really supported a lot of the things that you were saying right 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 yeah the center for urban and regional analysis they came out with a a report that pretty much just confirmed everything that we had been saying for a couple of years now that black and low-income people in the city were negatively impacted by the new design. So the report claimed that 22% of low-income neighborhoods in the city lost coverage mm-hmm. with the new system. I wonder which parts of the city. Well, I mean, there's no there's no poor black, poor white people in the city. <laughs> I mean, it's not that many. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So then a few months later, you made some headlines by filing your civil rights complaint. Talk a little bit about that. So the civil rights complaint was something that had been worked on for a couple years now. It, the complaint basically is built off of some observations of mine about the analysis the Title VI analysis that GRTC did before implementing the system. So there, there's a couple of major areas of concern with the way that they conducted their Title VI analysis. So what it is is that every every transit system has to conduct a service equity analysis when they're going to implement changes, and, and that's to ensure that minorities and low-income people won't be negatively impacted more so than the general population. And so... The fact that we even have to do that shows our habitual patterns of that happening. Well, I, I think it's a testament to the work of Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. you know, actually. Yeah. You know, yeah. a lot of people will just talk about this Civil Rights Act, like it's something that happened and oh, you know, but it's it's really something that we have to really consciously stay on people about. Right. So Title VI is Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So there, the service equity analysis that was conducted by GRTC, just to, I don't know, put it in simple terms, the way that they counted the number of people who would be impacted by the bus is that they use census data, which is, let's first say, for example, the Monument Avenue bus. Mm-hmm. The Monument Avenue bus runs along Monument Avenue and everything. So if I'm using census data to say who's riding that bus, then I'm essentially, I can, I can include all of those people that live on Monument Avenue in the you know, million dollar homes and stuff. You know, I, I'm including them in, as a part of it. Riding that bus. Right. And, right, right. Right. And so when you read the guidance that was sent out by the FTA, for how you conduct a Title VI analysis, it says that when you're making changes to an existing system, you, you're supposed to use the actual ridership data. Mm. You, you don't need to guess with census data, unless it's a new system. Okay. You know, if it's a new system that you're putting in, then it makes sense because right. you don't know who's riding. You don't have the data. Know? So yeah, but if you already have the data, then you use the data. Mm-hmm. You know, So that, I really would like for anyone to explain that one to me. 
Hmm. Uh, that that's a, a really easy question that you know for a consultant, for an advocate, for a GRTC executive, right. or anyone to answer. You know, why does it appear that they are not following the guidance of the FTA when it comes to the Title Six? You hmm. know, and and I suspect also that they have not used the proper like proximity distance when when determining access to the bus the uh, fta recommends that you use a, a quarter mile you know if you're farther than a quarter mile away then you know because that's like a, a reasonable distance that someone will walk to get to a bus stop and to me it seems like that they've used a half mile as a as a measuring to measurement of access also the FTA says that, you know, you, you measure the distance to the stop because if you have a, this bus route, you can only access the bus if it's stopping. Right. So using the line, the actual route, it, it really doesn't give you a, an accurate way to say that someone can access that, that transportation. Okay. But in GRTC's own documents, they say that they are using the line for the local routes and they're using the stops for the express routes. Huh. Right. That's interesting, too. Right. And I think that that's how they have were able to, I guess, like reroute buses in the east end to come over that Lee Street Bridge. Because if you look at the stop in front of Mosby, uh, MLK Middle School, and the next stop mm-hmm. is a mile away. Smart. You know, and I think that it, when you're using the line in that way, like you can you can justify that. Right. You know, because those buses used to go down the Shaco Bottom and everything, you know, mm-hmm. but they no longer do, which mm-hmm. means that people now have to catch two buses to get from Churchill down to Shaco Bottom. And it's it's always fine. I'm sorry, this stuff is really complicated. No. And I'm, and I'm nerdy and stuff. But. No, this is great because we have to be able to dive into the data to see exactly the, the discrepancy of where it went wrong. And understanding the route measure versus the stop measurement right there. It makes sense, right? It, it totally makes sense to me, like of to stop to stop versus the route of the bus. Like you have to, and measuring how someone can walk from stop to stop and that being what they use for that measurement. What you're saying right now brings me to the patterns of systems have used for a long time in order to whitewash data. And I know the show is called Race Capital, so I'm going to bring a racial dynamic into it. But there are ways for people to look at numbers and data to get the numbers and data that they need. Mm. You know what I mean? There's always a way to have a bias in data as well. And that's what it looks like. And that's why we need nerdy black folks like you diving into that to see and find, oh, this is where the data point went wrong. Right. Right. And the thing about it is that I suspect that this has happened in hundreds of cities right. across the country and that people haven't really honed down on what Title VI actually is right. and what the FTA is, guys, because people have been reporting, you know, even D.C. trains being stops being removed from service and, mm-hmm. and stuff all over the country. And mm-hmm. there may just be nobody really looking into it. Right. And that's what also makes us divide and who's advocating and what kind of messages are being sent to because you mentioned earlier that there are white transit advocates that are giving a lot of praise to the system and they may bring up you know some inequities here or there but right. mostly it's still the narrative of this is a good thing this we're going in the right direction they're having panels of it i i, I mean just 
watching from the outside, it's so interesting to me because it's back to that RVA Richmond conversation of is this for, who's this for, who's this by, and who has the mic? And it breaks my heart because transit and is such, it's such an equity issue. It, it leads us to everything that we need, to our food, to our paychecks. Housing. Housing. To have this in a silo is doing injustice to people. And we have to have this in the larger conversation. And that's why it's so dangerous for transit advocates to talk about it in that way as a silo and not right. make their narrative about the inequities. Right. I mean, especially when knowing that the way that transportation affects people's housing choice, you know, in this city, Ugh. like we have to really pay attention to that kind of stuff. You know, I don't think it was, it wasn't just coincidence that their original plan was to remove all of the routes from inside of public housing. You mm. know, there would have been no, if it wasn't for us pushing back, there would have been no routes left inside of any public housing in the city of Richmond. And so- And that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Not running through them. They, they were, uh, would have stayed on the outskirts of, right. of all of them. Right. But like HUD's own data, you and know- so what do people say like when when you come in as an advocate and bring that up what are the reactions by people in power or by people well, that, that are doing the system right like what do they say oops <laughs> well i i guess i haven't really gotten a type of direct response from them well when we pointed out that what they were doing with mosby well what they had proposed to do with mosby they did put that loop back into the their plan, you know, which was really interesting to me because when I read their reports, their reports before they even started planning said that that Mosby and Wickham route, it was one of the most efficient routes on the entire system, Jesus. you know, but for some reason, you know, it-, it Efficient it, for who though? That's right. the question. Yeah, but it, it's just crazy to, to see a plan being attempted that contradicts data that they themselves have, have put out. And, and so what I really think that that was about was taking, like directly taking away resources from a poor black community in order to uh, fund other things in the system. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. And like even that route now, which that route used to go down to Shaco Bottom, you know, and people that worked at the McDonald's and everything used to, you know, go from Wickham or, you know, Mosby down to Shaco Bottom or wherever in one bus. Now it goes uh, through VCU into Carytown. And I believe that that's the reason. What? Yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> And, and so that bus, though, that bus is a hot topic right now with VCU. And, and when you hear them talking about VCU and GRTC and stuff, mm -hmm. they're, they're talking a lot about that bus. Why? So, well, because it runs it's it runs through VCU and down down to Carytown or whatever. So that I, I, I feel that that's the reason because of that bus running through VCU and Carytown. That's the only reason why they've allowed that bus to stay 15 minutes frequency. Oof. Every other route in Churchill. Well, every other route in the East End is every 30 minutes now, you know? Well, I think they, they actually, they restored the frequency to the Fulton bus, but you know, mm -hmm. they had tried to, they did take away and make it back to 30 minutes, but it's 15 now, but yeah. But um, because there, there was resistance, because there were people like you right. out there having to show that and, and make that front. It's not because people that are planning this and doing this are saying, you know what, we need to do better. You know what, we need to make sure that this is serving folks. It's a, usually a funding piece to make sure certain parts of the city are getting what they want, not even what they need, just what they want. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, 
it's really it's crazy out here it's crazy and and i'll tell you like the craziest part is that other advocates in the city the people that are supportive of the changes that happen it's like if they see that the system is inequitable and they'll say oh you know this new system is pretty great you know yeah yeah it, it does have a few issues you know but we just need more funding and there is another there is a black person Mm. And uh, and other black people in the community that are saying, hey, this thing is negatively impacting us. Hey, this stuff is a, a racist. It's a civil rights violation. But then they still continue to support it. It's like, am I? Do you feel that people are lying? You know, or do do you not even feel that you're being racist by supporting the racist system? Right. You know, and it's it's really crazy that the world of. Uh, you know, so-called allies and advocacy and and well-meaning people. Exactly. It's this cognitive dissonance of understanding what their voice does to the voice of the people, the voice that are really impacted. Like by them having panels at Gallery 5 with not one person of color on these panels. Sure, that was intentional. It has to be, you know, like yeah. it, it has to that be at this kinda, point. Yeah, that, that. Literally not one person of color. <laughs> I I was on vacation watching this and trying to just enjoy my life. But, you know, Richmond's always being crazy racist. And it, it just, how can we be this blind? But this is how we've always functioned in this country is to just be blind to it. So when we talk about this conversation, it's like, are you going to be intentional to say it out loud that this is not okay? That when you are talking, are you going to point to the work of what you all are doing and saying, you know, it might be working for me, but you shouldn't just be asking me. In fact, we should probably push the mic and have and talk to the people that have the complaints. Because right. if I'm okay, I don't need this mic. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is how we actually create the allies and, and do the passing the mic and to take the step back of if we're not able to amplify the, the black and brown voices of this movement, then what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? And one thing that I've heard from a lot of these advocates is, and the planning commissions, is this argument that, oh, it connects people to jobs. Yeah. But they're missing. Yeah. The poor black people are always held up. I, I, I don't know the word that I'm thinking of for it, but in this city, they're always put on display to get the white corporate interests paid, you know? Like it, it's it's it might be uh oh the poor black kids you know um we we need more funding for them or you know or it's the the public housing residents you know and like the whole the, and they've even used the the anti poverty commission report you know and, and when they're saying like connected jobs and you know this is the step towards regional transit and all of that the anti poverty commission report you know it did say yes we should design a regional transportation system in order to get people to jobs and things like that. But to remove coverage from the neighborhood so that people can get to this regional transit system, like you're working backwards. Right. It's always for who, right? Like what who, what person and what job, right? You're not talking, you're talking about- Poor black people, they need to, they need to live in better housing. So we're going to tear their housing down and we're going to, you know, give these corporate interest money and push these people out of the city. You know, it's, it's, they're always put in the poor black people on display to get something done. Get something done. So recently, some consultants have come out and criticized the report from December. Oh, Talk yeah. a little bit about that. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's. I just want to say 
Congratulations to VCU and the Center of Urban and Regional Analysis for making those consultants actually crunch some numbers. Mm. Like, you know, because that's that's all. I, I was amazed by they actually did some math because I, I know that... <laughs> I know that during the the community engagement activities and everything, the surveys and stuff that they were using, there was no they were there was no scientific basis for them at all. You know, right. <laughs> those things were ridiculous. But um, yeah, I, I was really amazed by that, and I was really more so. I loved it because they for them to even feel that they had to respond to that. Mm. You know, so that's what I I loved about it. You know, hmm. even though that's you know point. my my concerns with the transit system, they, they stand even without that report. You know, I had seen people, <laughs> it's so funny. <sighs> These advocates, they will do anything to not, they will try to deflect at, at Kim Gray. They will talk about her stuff with Gray Street. Yeah. They will talk about this, this report and everything, but they will not challenge the stuff that I'm asserting in the civil rights complaint. They mm-hmm. won't do it, you know, right. and, and I welcome them too. You did on Twitter. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, no, because I mean, hey, you know, help me out. Was I, I, all I want is for someone to come and investigate, you know, so hey, you know, if, if someone investigates it and they see that, oh, you know, what, what you're saying, no, it's flawed because of this and that, hey, you know, I, I'll accept that. But I, I would like to see that happen, though. Mm-hmm. Who else? Is there anybody else? besides what you all are doing over at Community Unity in Action, CUIA, that is helping the narrative in the transit? Because we're talking a lot about white folks, and I I also want to say, are there any any real allies to this work that we can lift? Well, yeah, I mean, there's... I mean, I don't really, I don't want to say people's names. You don't have to. No, you, I mean, you, you, there's a, a lot of people that, that support the work. Right. And that, I don't want it to be like you're coming after just white people in general, right? Like there are, there's certain folks that aren't intersecting this conversation with the people of the community. And then there are some people that are doing this the right way. Well, I mean, RVA Dirt helps out, you know, they, yeah. they're, they're, they help out putting the good message. The message out there, out there right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a number of people, a lot of allies that help get the work done. Right. And- I, I want to just really focus on when we're talking about like white and black and the advocates of what you said earlier is not necessarily calling them white transit advocates because they're white, but it's because they're advocating for a white transit system. Right. And the white transit system is one that leaves out black communities, poor black communities, low income communities, and continues to quote unquote improve or shift the system to continue to marginalize those communities as well, rather than looking to improve and benefit those communities. Yeah. That's a white transit system. Right, right. And that's what keeps continuing in Richmond. And every time we upgrade it or have a new plan, it's who's actually getting hurt first and worst. And here in Richmond, it used to be a chocolate city, and we still are a minority majority, but it's it's our own people. And I love that you are super nerdy and can talk about the data, but can also talk about the law and interpreting the law to work for us when we need it to as well. And you can stand in that, which is why a lot of folks have not questioned you on your civil rights complaint. I think it's also a big reason why they're maybe not including you on a lot of these conversations because you're going to bring it up and everyone's going to be crickets in the room. Mm. Right? Like Mm. what? Because I see you when you come and and into places, into rooms and... And 
it's always just interesting how you're received, right? I I can usually pick up a vibe on people's intentions just on how they receive Omari. And I'll say in a lot of the housing conversations recently, they open and they welcome your voice. They want to hear the truth about a lot of this is going on in some rooms. But in this transit conversation, I, I'm still not seeing that intersection of white transit advocates lifting up the voice that you're doing and working with you on that. Yeah, that is. That's interesting. It is. Yeah. Like <laughs> it, I hadn't noticed. That. <laughs> it is. It, it how they I mean you you're a truth teller. I, I don't and this is me putting some descriptions on you, right? I know just from what I've seen your work and you bring the disruption in the room, which is usually just the truth. Right. Based on data and history. Mm-hmm. especially here in the formal capital yeah, confederacy. I, I rarely I rarely will speak on something that I haven't researched and that I can't really back up with facts. And when you don't spit the numbers and you're not putting out a quote of a of a law, you have your phone out and can just show the people, mm-hmm. right? You can show people the overgrown bushes at a sidewalk or at a bus stop. You can show that there is no bench there. And within weeks, right? Oh, all of a sudden we're going to respond. We're going to react. And there is a bench there. But it's continuing to take these voices to do the work, to put themselves out there. This is exhausting work. You don't get paid for this, right? But there would be none of this without the disruption and without without the truth in the room. So imagine what else we're missing right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. Like I said, even that the civil rights, you know, the Title VI issues that, that I said might be happening nationally, but Title VI applies to a lot of different areas of government. So imagine right. what's going on, like when they're closing down hospitals in certain neighborhoods. Are there some rights being violated there, you mm. know, that we're not really combing through, you know, or, or anything really? Well, I'm really thankful for the work that you're doing. You the, too. For Thank the, you the work of CUIA and you all really do monitor the city's civil rights because I'm not trying to bash anybody, but right now we just don't have another group doing that. Yeah. And well, that was kind of what led to the creation of CUIA was the fact that other organizations that might be in the area weren't really allowing that space for for real advocacy, real Mm -hmm. authentic advocacy. How can people support you in your work? Well, um, let's see. Leaders of the New South Community Council for Housing. That's our Facebook. They can follow me on Twitter at Leaders of the New South. No, it's RVA New South, right? Yeah, (laughs) RVA New South. Leaders of New South on Instagram also. We'll make sure we tag you. Oh, yeah, cool, cool. I also have an organization called the Richmond Food Justice Alliance. When we push for advocacy and healthier eating, Mm-hmm. in uh, Richmond. So mm-hmm. push for access to healthier foods. And it, we do it in a more, a broader lens than you might see some of the other organizations locally where their their primary goal is the food getting to your mouth. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that's where all their efforts are focused. Right. And we are intentional about addressing historical inequities that have existed in Richmond, that still exist, that drive the the low food access in itself right you know so even if we put a new grocery store in an area that has historically been denied one the residents what is the residents perception of what healthy eating is you know when that grocery store gets here right well we would love to have you on for that conversation as well oh sure definitely and again just want to thank you for your work but before you go we want to hit you with what 
What's your privilege? What's your privilege is a segment of the show where we invite our guests to identify a privilege that they own within their identity that they use to disrupt the myth of white supremacy. Well, I do feel fortunate to have, have had the experiences that I've had mm-hmm. throughout life. I don't know if that's... Yeah, really, it is. Like, what you know, could um, you... Like, well, so privilege? I, I've experienced, like, a diverse range of cultures. Right. And I guess public speaking skills that I attained, you know, in high school. And I think that that helps me a lot in mm-hmm. my advocacy. That's That's how I'm able to, you know, deal with politicians and deal with the brother on the corner, right. you know, or the sister in the projects or whatever, you know, like I can engage with different groups right. pretty well and, and convey different pieces of information pretty well. So kind of have to be bilingual to do this work that you're out here doing. <laughs> <laughs> Legit though. But yeah, I, uh, I also appreciate the, this question of what's your privilege is really hard sometimes for black folks. Like it's just not something that, is brought to our attention in most times. And what we're always hearing too, is that some of these experiences that you, you've you had, Omari, have to do with the public speaking, but it's also your experiences throughout your life that also allow you to connect with people. And that's a privilege. Like people might say that, oh, what a right. hard life you've gone through. Right. But that the struggle is also part of building your own privilege and your own platform too. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's how I... That's what I interpret when you, when you ask the question. Yeah. I was just like, well, that's what I guess that's, uh, that counts. It counts. It counts. Well, thank you, Amari, so much for being here. My privilege is that I own a car and I am not, I'm a choice rider. <laughs> I don't have to ride the bus. I've never had to ride the bus. That is something that does not impact me. And so I have the privilege of being an observer in this and that means something that means i have to rely on folks like you and and people in the street to say hey tell me what's going on because i don't know i can give a mic in front of your face and ask you to speak your story if you're willing to if you have that energy just because you're probably just trying to get to your job to your home but that is really my privilege of i have taught people the bus system for years working in mental health but i never had to do it myself Mm. So in my own advocacy, that was something that I used to always tell people of, I've gone through the bus route and exposed it to so many people, but I've, it's never been something I just had to do. Wow. That was like probably the deepest. So that, oh man, yeah. that was pretty powerful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. That was, that was cool. That was, that's what we try and do here at Race Capital. Okay. Well, come on back, Omari. I will. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks. So as always, Omari just really brings more questions to my mind about how we are going to continue to move forward. Omari, just like myself, a lot of times can be labeled as divisive. And really, he's just bringing the question to the table about what really is access and what type of lens do we need to bring to these advocating spaces? White transit advocacy is for white transit and understanding that that's only going to serve white people. But from a black transit, a black advocate mind, what that can bring is 
accessibility and equity to a completely different group that will then also serve white people and affluent people. So when we're talking about black transit advocacy, that really is advocacy for everyone because those are the folks that are being impacted first, worst, and the most negative. And so while we're celebrating and while we're cheering for new systems, if we look beside us or down the street, If our black advocates and the people that ride the bus, the people that are impacted aren't cheering along with us, we need to take a hard look in the mirror about are we really winning? Is this really progress or are we just kind of ignoring what we don't want to talk about because we want something to be excited about because it's serving us because it looks shiny for us because we don't feel it. And that kind of bleeds into everything, every sector of it. If it's not led by the folks that are impacted the most, then we probably don't have the realm, the view that we need to, to really fix the problem and include everyone into the conversation so we can move forward. Access flows upstream. And if you're already up at the top, the folks down there are never going to get that type of nutrition, that those resources, right? I always look at access and privilege on a hierarchy, on a scale. At the very bottom of your Y-axis are people of color, trans people, people differently abled, and the access will flow up, right, to the white affluent male up at the top. So if we start down there, if we work from that lens, it will then benefit everybody. But that access doesn't work the other way, and we've got to include these voices. So I'm just wondering, when will that happen for Richmond Transit? If. And do the white advocates do even recognize that? Is that a conversation that they're willing to have? I don't know. We'd be happy for them to reach out and we can talk, chat a little bit. We're always open for feedback, y'all. Racecapital at gmail.com. Find us on all the social medias. But we thank Omari for coming in today. We thank y'all for tuning in as usual. And we'll see y'all next week. I'm from the autumn.